Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Thanks for tuning in today. So, so many people are talking about that microbiome that got poop. Yep, it's not your dinner conversation, but it's starting to become so. So I found one of the really cool experts in this space that knows a ton about that. He's been uh, advising a pro athlete. He's been mentored by one of the coolest doctors out there that I actually interviewed as well. It might be up by this time, Dr. Ted. Unless you should definitely find that episode. It's Roland Pankowitz. And he has a really cool story and going to teach us what we need to know about that microbiome. So, Roland, thank you so much for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. I mean, everyone loves talking about poo. It doesn't matter how old you are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And uh, you're also running this health optimization clinic in Canada. I am, yes. So, I mean, health optimization is becoming a global thing. It started in Manila, in the Philippines, actually. Then it moved to the United States. And then, you know, what the U.S. does, Canada follows suit. So now myself and my colleague Ayla Reed are running the health optimization clinic in Canada. That's going to be going commercial next year in terms of getting its own space. So actually, it's going to be the world's first. And it's been a lot of fun learning this over the last three years with the founder, Dr. Ted himself. That's pretty awesome. So how did you get into uh, microbiome optimal health? Oh, boy. You know, I've always been really interested in health. I myself was a competitive athlete at a younger age, and I was also involved in exercise. Yeah. So I was... Training people, learning how to optimize my own training for performance, that led me to being more interested in what I could do besides exercise to be a better athlete, to be a healthier athlete. So I started researching into food and diet and then, you know, wanting to know more about how things worked. I was encouraged to go back to school. So I went back to school to study nutrition and then really started to find my passion in that, learning about energy metabolism and fat loss. And then the whole idea of, well, It's not just about, say, calories in or calories out, or it's not about performance supplements. You have to have a base, hmm. and that base has to be one of a, a foundation of health that led me to doing education for a supplement company and helping them develop and build their brand in Canada. And then from there, like yourself, I wanted to start podcasting and meeting people, meeting experts around the world to learn about what it is they did that was really cool. And it led me to interviewing Dr. Ted, which was in 2016. And then in January 2017, I got an invite to go to Los Angeles for what was the first meetup of the World Health Optimization Organization. I mean, fundamentally, it was a group of people in an Airbnb, but when you frame it a certain way, it sounds quite <laughs> awesome. And that's kind of when I had my perspective cracked open about what health can actually be, you know, with a proper framework in place, with an understanding of what variables you can use, with a way to measure. So it, it takes away the guessing. You look at objective data, so you test, you don't guess. And then from there, it was this opportunity to study with Dr. Ted himself, which, you know, when a guy of that intelligence or that stature says, do you want to learn from me? You like, you know, pick your chin up off the ground. You find a way to say yes. And then it was traveling around the world every month for almost three years. Fantastic. And only recently have I been able to park myself because, you know, the benefits of all that labor are starting to pay off. And there, there's clients that are coming in locally in Canada, but also clients around the world, the United States, and there's people in Europe inquiring. So, you know, if you build it, they will come, but now it's built and they're here. So That's we gotta go. <laughs> That's fantastic. Must have been fantastic to work that close with Ted as well and learn from him. 
Yeah, I mean, it was cool because it also forced me, I can give you an answer to the second part of your question. You said, why the microbiome? You know, Ted's like the mitochondrial guy, hmm. you know, and then it, it made me start thinking, well, you know, what are the foundational principles of what governs your health and wellness? And energy production is always the base. You know, if there's no energy, there's no organism health. But I thought, well, for a human, what goes on in the GI system I mean, that's the last line of defense of the outside of the body. So the window into the health of the gut is a window into the health of the individual. And there's so much going on there that it's actually an organ in and of itself. So I took it upon myself to go, you know, elbows deep in shit and figure out what's going <laughs> on inside the human GI system. So you're looking at a lot of microbiome tests or how does that yeah, work? So, or how do yeah, you look so at the gut to get started? That's a great question because, I mean, you have to know what you're looking at in the first place. You know, people say the word microbiome and I like to be able to kind of define some of these terms so people have perspectives of what they're looking at. You know, the microbiome is the culmination of the organisms that live inside of our gut, the cells of the GI system, the immune system, the mucosal layer. It's the entire network of the organ and of itself. And it's all the interactions of those things that dictate the overall function of the microbiome. Inside the microbiome, you have the microbiota, which are the trillions of bacterial species that inhabit, and they live in this mucus medium, which is essentially a watery carbohydrate protein structure that essentially houses them, and it's a, a source of shelter for them. It's also a source of food under certain conditions. Then you have you know, the principal set of your immune system. They say hey, 65 to 75% of the immune cells in the body reside in the gut. And the reason being is the gut is two things, right? It's a barrier, but it's also an absorbative surface. And it's much better at being an absorbative surface than it is a barrier because you want things that you eat to get into your bloodstream. And the structure of the gut and the immune system is the last line of defense to determine what's supposed to stay out of the bloodstream and then to how to optimally absorb those nutrients that you eat, you know, absorb the water that you drink. It's been designed to be really good at that. And mm. it's the breakdown of all those things that determine gut problems, but it's also the efficiency of all those things that determine overall health. Yeah. So leaky gut is something a lot of people talk about. Yes. So a few comments on leaky gut that a lot of people find is actually the root cause for many of their problems. And how do we fix it? That's a good question. So I guess we should define what leaky gut is, right? So I talked about the gut being a barrier. It's a physical barrier, but it's actually not a very strong one. What I mean by that is the digestive system itself is only a single layer of cells thick, mm. and those cells replicate themselves every three to five days. So it's a very high turnover. And the way that the GI system is anchored together, you have these proteins between these cells. I'm going to do this like a little model with my hands. And if this is two cells, you have a, a glue-like substance that binds them together. The analogy I use is if you look at a house, you can see the individual bricks and you can see the mortar between the bricks that hold the structure as one solidly closed wall, for lack of a better description. Yeah. So that's a, a very loose model of, of looking at your GI system. What happens with leaky gut is And GI cells, system. Can you say a word about what GI system is? Oh, the gastrointestinal system. I use it as a synonym for the gut. Yeah. We'll, say that we'll use the gut to keep it in the, the same yeah. theme. So when the cells of the gut have a breakdown of these protein structures, the cells start to move apart a little bit. And when they move apart, there's essentially a gap between what is meant to be a barrier and then things that are in the gut can get between this gap, get into the bloodstream, and then the immune system has to be called upon because they're not meant to be in the bloodstream in the first place. So the body has essentially a foreign invader. 
And those things could be food antigens in completely digested food proteins or amino acids. They could be bacterial markers. They could be environmental toxins. They could be internal toxins that are from dead bacteria. And the problem becomes if this happens chronically over the course of weeks, months, and years, it's always going to signal an inflammatory response inside the body, which the body is going to have to respond to. Overall, it's going to have a, a compromised effect on the overall health of many people. So you're right in saying there's a lot of diseases or conditions that are tied to leaky gut. And then what to do about it, that's, a, that's another conversation altogether. <laughs> so a lot of autoimmune diseases are looking like they're coming from the leaky gut. At least I've heard several people say. So mm -hmm. people that are listening out there, that could be something to look into. How would you figure out whether you have a leaky gut or not? Well, there's a couple ways to look at a test, right? So what we do with health optimization is we test everything because it gives us insights as to, into what's actually going on. Because someone can say, oh, I feel like I have leaky gut, but they're always bloated. It could be gut dysbiosis, for example. You can look at a couple markers of certain proteins, things like zonulin levels, which has been correlated to have when zonulin is elevated, usually it indicates that the body has issues with gut leakiness because the body's having to make more of this protein to incorporate it into the cells of the gut itself. Some other indications are if you have bacterial dysbiosis or other inflammatory protein markers, anytime there's inflammation in the gut, the structure of the gut becomes compromised because inflammation degrades structure. So you have to assume that if someone has a long-term chronic inflammatory scenario going on in their gut, there is a degree of leakiness that the body might be able to remedy, but likely not if it's never remedied itself. Additionally, like you mentioned, with an autoimmune disease, the connection there usually is that if proteins of specific foods or specific origins get into the bloodstream undigested, the immune system becomes overburdened and becomes confused. And if the protein structure looks like that of body tissues, this phenomenon called molecular mimicry can take place, where the immune system, when constantly poked and stimulated, starts to turn on its own body tissues because it loses the ability to distinguish self from not self. So it's in those things where if you have an autoimmune disease, you can probably go back in time and assume that at some point you had a leaky gut. In addition, if you have chronically unresolved inflammatory scenarios in your digestive system, you might be able to say there is a degree of leakiness, hmm. but the most objective level is looking at whatever inflammatory markers you can measure on a, a blood test or more specifically on a stool test that correlate with what the research has shown on leaky gut. Yeah, makes sense. And so the whole thing about testing for the microbiome and the stool test, there's a lot of different information out there about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, I've read a lot about the R16 sequencing method. Uh, I heard Viome that is claiming that they have the best technology in the world. But I also heard a lot of people complaining about Viome being <laughs> full of uh, what they're gathering. What's your take on uh, like how, to, how do you find the right microbiome test to do, a stool test? One thing is you can reach out to you if you're in Europe or in Canada, potentially yes. the US as well. Yeah, you can definitely reach out to us to get some more insight. To answer your question, I'm going to say that there's no such thing as a perfect microbiome test yeah. because the research in that area moves so quickly. What was something that we took to be truth a year ago might actually be shown to be something not valid today. So I always have the sense of humility to say there's always things we're learning and what you tease out in terms of information should never be written in stone. So the 16S method is the most longstanding way of doing genetic model sequencing. But 
even when you're testing someone, there's still no such thing as a perfect microbiome or an ideal microbiome. It's like saying, you know, Mads, who has the world's most ideal thumbprint? You My mom would say I have. You do, yes. <laughs> I heard Denmark, you have really nice thumbprints yes. in Denmark. But you can't answer that question, right? Because it's individual to the person, you know? It's even as far as to say a certain strain of bacteria in one person is a big problem. That same strain of bacteria in another person might be totally problem-free. So when I test everyone's GI system, I'm looking for trends and patterns. I'm not looking at, oh, you have this bacteria high, you have this one low, so I need you to take this strain of probiotic bacteria. It's, you can't do it that way because we don't know. We don't have enough information. What I like to look at is the trends and patterns of what the person is presenting to me in terms of the overall health of their system. You know, is there an infection there or is there no infection? Is there an inflammatory response or is inflammation within reasonable levels of control? Is there a digestive insufficiency which has a potential downstream consequence? And what you can measure from the metabolic arm of the microbiome, is there an imbalance to which you can actually do something about and improve that person's overall condition and health status? Yeah. That's how I approach it. Makes sense. So I actually had a microbiome test done a year, two years ago where it said that there was some kind of dysbiosis, so I needed some probiotics to kind of fix that. So uh, the functional doctor suggested that I did, did three months of probiotics and then took a break because then it's then sort of stabilized and then ideally I would test again to show the results. But some of the tests are fairly expensive, so I didn't do the test again, but I'll definitely, I, I want to do another test to see how it looks today. But how do you need to do the health optimization panel? Definitely. So uh, I need to talk to you, Ted, and uh, and Ted about getting that done soon. Sure. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing too, right? Is it's, what you're testing and what you can do, there's even more of a limitation in terms of being able to be very specific about microbiome interventions. What I mean by that is, you know, I recently came back from the World Microbiota Conference in Poland. I was there about a month ago. And these are the top researchers in the world. And you still only have so many interventions. You know, you have probiotics, as you mentioned, You have prebiotics. There's this new field called postbiotics, which you don't even really know how to define that yet, but they're like bacterial metabolites and organic acids, secondary bile acids, and various things that we're now seeing the bacteria also do strategically to help improve their environment. Yeah. Then you have diet. And Roland, you know, just before we, how do you define probiotics and prebiotics if someone never heard about that? Uh, no one's ever heard of a probiotic. Probiotic is essentially organisms or specifically live organisms that are bacteria that you're introducing into your microbiome. Yeah. And what they do, my analogy is they're like temporary vacationers. Yeah. You know, I don't know what the European equivalent is. I'm sure you guys go down to Portugal or Spain or something on the Mediterranean for about two weeks. You enrich the local economy. All the restaurants and the hotels are happy. Then everyone leaves and business returns back to normal. Probiotics are kind of like that. But the goal is when you take a probiotic, once you've started supplementation and then you've stopped, you hope that the benefit that you received is something that you can carry forwards because you've improved the overall health status of your, your gut. Yeah. Prebiotics are the fiber that you consume that ends up being the food for the bacteria to sustain. You know, bacteria are live organisms, and if you don't feed them, they starve. So this is why certain fibers and prebiotics are found to be important in research, because if you don't vary the kinds of fiber in the food, you contribute to a reduction of the diversity of bacteria, which means the number of species in your rainforest starts to dwindle. So that upsets the balance of the environment. And then on top of that, 
if there's not fiber coming in from external sources, the bacteria actually start to consume the mucus they live in because there's carbohydrates in that. And then when you start to thin the mucus layer, what ends up happening is the bacteria start to interact with the cells of your GI system, which causes your immune system to respond. And that can be the beginnings of a leaky gut inflammatory scenario. So the prebiotics are serving as a way to keep the bacteria happy, well-fed, so they can create compounds that locally and systemically improve our health, things like short-chain fatty acids and other compounds from the plant foods that we eat. And where would you get the prebiotics from? Anything in the plant kingdom. So any kind of fiber that you're consuming. The one thing I will say about prebiotics is sometimes they're a double-edged sword. People who have gut problems who want to do a high-fiber diet or they want to start taking you know, foods that have things like inulin fiber in them, you can become a giant ball of gas and constipation <laughs> if you're not careful. So the idea in clinical research and clinical practice is that if someone has a lot of GI problems and you do a test and you find an overgrowth of pathogenic or dysbiotic bacteria, you want to be careful with giving too many prebiotics because prebiotics aren't selective for healthy or non-healthy bacteria. So you they can feed. also be feeding the bad bacteria. Exactly. Potentially. And what That's, foods would be really good for prebiotics? Some of the most prebiotic-rich foods are things like, you know, Jerusalem artichoke, high-fiber vegetables, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, things of that nature. Yeah. You can also get prebiotic-like foods in things like potatoes, white rice. It's called resistant starch. But I'm not a huge fan of doing high doses of those because I tried it myself. It was fucking awful. <laughs> I was just, I mean, I've done everything to my GI system as a test. I've even tried high dose probiotics. I didn't leave the house one day. <laughs> so you got to be careful with just throwing these things into your system. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a lot of research out there. There's also a lot of people who do things. They report an amazing benefit and then they tell the world that this is the greatest thing ever. And then someone else tries it and it could be the potentially worst thing ever. Yeah. But the the long and short of it is someone rotates different kinds of vegetables and fruits, you know, some grains for some people who consume them. If people like legumes, you can do that as well, nuts and seeds. There's different fibers within those different plant foods. And the rotation of fibers, in my opinion, is probably the best methodology to allow for, you know, a wide diversity of food to support a wide diversity of bacteria. Yeah, that's also what I hear a lot, that... You need to have a balanced diet so you don't eat the same thing again and again, also for your microbiome. You guys in Europe are so much better at that than we are in North America. I think the average American, I don't know Canadian statistics, the most popular vegetables in the U.S. are carrots, cucumber, and celery, right? So yeah. that's the bulk of the fiber you're consuming, and the rest of it's high, high sugar, high starch foods. Yeah. That can still feed your microbiome, but that creates a microbiome profile that is very much easily predisposed to an inflammatory or like an obesity-like reaction. If you look at certain countries in the world, like Okinawa, Japan, I think they eat about 75 different foods a week on average. That's amazing. And I got this little tray for breakfast and it had 16 different quadrants. So my thing was like, okay, that's room for 16 different foods. And it felt really good, you know, it, it, to, to have these different kinds of raw foods, cooked foods, fermented foods. That's another strategy as well because your bacteria will respond differently to a raw or a cooked version of the same food. And this is a, a test I've, I've given some people, you know, if you eat raw broccoli and it's a very, very negative consequence, but cooked broccoli, it lets you know that there are some bacterial potentially abnormalities inside your gut hmm. that don't allow you to properly metabolize the fiber. Because there's one other thing I'll mention if I can. 
a diverse gut bacteria can also help you break down fiber that that might require two different species of bacteria. It's a phenomenon called cross-feeding. So imagine you eat some kind of vegetable and you want that vegetable to be converted into something that is beneficial for your gut. It's almost like you have bacteria A that partially converts the fiber, bacteria B finishes the job. Hmm. And it's that scenario that makes people who can eat anything likely candidates for having a healthier gut microbiome than someone who, if they eat a certain food, they're either bloated or their gut's a little bit, you know, inflamed, they don't feel good, they're gassy. So there's a lot in that that, you know, that's why it's good to look into your own personal health as an N equals one study. That's the, the biohacking way is quantify yourself. Yeah. And so probiotics, where can uh, where can we find them? What kind of different ways are there to get probiotics? The way that's most common nowadays is via supplements, so yeah. supplemental probiotics. I mean, there's a lot on the market. There are many different strains or many different profiles. I have mixed success with live probiotics, the ones that you need to refrigerate, just because we don't necessarily know if all probiotics are able to survive the harsh environment of the stomach. So for that reason, I default to some specialized probiotics like spore-based probiotics because I find they have a much better overall effect rather than going for a high, high number, 50, 100, 150 billion. What I would rather do is kind of mimic how nature intended us to get bacteria, meaning, you know, if you watch a small child or a baby, they're touching things and they're putting their fingers in their mouth. Yeah. So they're introducing environmental bacteria that helps to stimulate and educate the immune system. So that model is actually what's really beneficial for keeping inflammation low and allowing our natural microbiome to thrive based upon having an optimal diet. My philosophy is not, let's give you high dose probiotics from supplements. In some cases it's needed. People who have bowel diseases, Crohn's, colitis, autoimmune diseases, maybe if that's a problem. But I do believe the high dose probiotic thing also comes with some consequences of bacterial overgrowth. I'd rather do it via really optimizing someone's diet and then using probiotics not in massive quantities of a specific style or strain. You can also get probiotics in fermented foods. Mm -hmm. The question becomes, do those bacteria survive the trek into your GI system? I have no idea because some people, if you've you know heard stories about those wanting to try kimchi or sauerkraut, and then they're in the bathroom having the runs. So those things are very much try a little bit first and see if your body can tolerate it. But the best way is through supplements currently. Yeah. It just depends on how someone's using them. So the ones that I am getting, I've told to eat at least in half an hour before I eat food. How much okay, does that actually matter and, and why? It depends on if the bacteria are acid resistant or not. Meaning, you know, if your stomach acid gets to a pH of maybe 1.5 to 2, it's very acidic. It could burn a hole in a wooden table. So if the bacteria are not tolerant of that really harsh acidic environment, the live bacteria that you're taking could likely die on their way into your colon because that's where most of the bacteria live. You want them to get past the stomach, past the small intestine, into the colon because that environment is most well-suited to actually harbor those bacteria for a home, for lack of better description. Got it. So it, it yeah. really matters like the bacteria that you're getting. It matters that. It also matters how they're encapsulated. Is the encapsulation process acid resistant or are the bacteria themselves not so fragile that they actually wait to arrive into the small or large intestine, interact with the local environment before they're kind of brought back online to life? Yeah. So that's another consideration as well. Okay. So now we know 
prebiotics, probiotics, we have the risk of leaky gut, and mm. uh, we can get some food. What uh, would be a good intervention if you have some of these problems? So if someone has leaky gut, what would the best intervention be? Yeah, or one intervention. Like how would you, how would you get started? The thing that I would suggest that most people can instantaneously do is if you have issues with leaky gut, the first thing you do is support your digestion. Why? The digestive process is essentially the thing that helps to neutralize any pathogens from entering your body, but it also helps to ensure that when your body's ready to absorb the food that you eat, it's properly broken down. You know, proteins need to be digested primarily in the stomach. If you don't have good liver and gallbladder function, you're not going to make enough bile, so your fats are not going to get digested well. In addition, bile acts as like a soap to help clear out excessive bacteria in the small intestine. So most people go right to probiotics or prebiotics. Very few people focus on digestion because it's not sexy. Mm. You know, chewing your food well. If you don't make enough stomach acid, using supplemental hydrochloric acid or supplemental enzymes can make a massive difference for someone because if you're going by symptoms, there is no symptom of leaky gut, but there is a symptom of indigestion. There is a symptom of bloating. There is a symptom of gas production. So if that's always a recurrent thing in someone's life, that's your body saying, this system isn't working properly. You need to support this until we can rectify this problem and heal ourselves. That would be the first thing I would do. Roland, what is up with the whole uh, chewing food a lot more? I heard that several times and people are like, I just need to get my food down. Yeah, well, does your stomach have teeth? <laughs> <laughs> That's a thing that I, that I was told. I, I used to be a quick eater. Yeah. And one of my teachers in school looked at me. He's like, Roland, Jesus, your stomach doesn't have teeth. And that was so impactful to me because I'm thinking, shit, you're right. I'm just choking food down just to get it down. If you don't chew properly you don't increase the surface area of the food that you're eating to expose itself to more digestive secretions, right? That's the first thing. If you're not chewing properly, you're not going to be mixing the food with the enzymes in your saliva, and you're not going to be stimulating a proper vagus nerve response to actually allow the facilitation of the digestive process to complete. Is that the same as when you uh, drink a smoothie? I've heard several people say like you don't have to write enzymes created if you don't chew, if it's not uh, thick enough. There probably is some logic behind that. I mean, a smoothie is is the surface area is broken down for you by the blade and the blender. Yeah. So you're not required to chew as much for the sake of breaking down the food itself. But there still are enzymes that you want to mix with your saliva to start the digestive process before the food goes into your stomach. And the chewing in and of itself activates that parasympathetic pathway that allows your vagus nerve to signal your stomach to release everything, your pancreas your gallbladder, and then ultimately it allows the peristalsis, which is the term that's used to describe how food moves through your gut, to be facilitated at a proper rate so it doesn't move too slowly to create constipation or it doesn't move too quickly to cause diarrhea or loose stool. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. And then the second item is, you know, food choices in and of itself. If you have an inflamed gut, it's almost a certain thing that you have higher levels of certain species of bacteria. And those bacteria thrive on high grain, high carb, high sugar foods. So if someone has a leaky gut and you're basically throwing little bits of gasoline on the fire by eating processed foods, you know, polyunsaturated fat oils, canola oil, vegetable oil, high sugary foods, those things are going to help continue the process of sustaining the leaky gut because as soon as those foods interact with specific species of bacteria, 
They're not going to be doing what they would do with a prebiotic and making things like short-chain fatty acids. They're going to allow those pathogenic bacteria to thrive and reduce the diversity, ultimately leading to a more likely scenario of gut inflammation. Got it. And what else do we need to know about the digestive system and microbiome? You know, one thing that I giggle because there's so many jokes around it, but not many people really think about how well they take a dump, right? <laughs> how well they shit. So tell me some more about that. Well, first and foremost, here, I have a question for you, Madge. You're going to have to ask all, you're going to have to be honest with all your listeners. How often do you look in the toilet after you take a shit? I actually do that every time. So okay, that good. I learned about the Bristol. I don't. I don't. I have oh, a. That could work. <laughs> we have a business idea. Yeah, I I have a good friend actually that that does take pictures, and yeah. another friend he's using this app Poop Track or something like that. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I am pretty nerdy about this stuff. But I would say two years ago, it's actually called Poop Tracker. It's an app where you can actually um, put in what kind of uh, form, color, and so yeah. on your poop was and when you had it. Um, but uh, two years ago, I was totally like, the first time I heard about someone, like, you have to look at your poop, I was like, say what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is an ideal formation for stool, right? There's even something called a Bristol stool chart that shows you from one to seven where you lie on the spectrum of really hard and constipated or really watery and messy, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> I always start giggling when we go down this this rabbit hole. But the vast majority of people don't poo well. Yeah. You know, when you sit down there, it should just slip out like a smooth criminal. It shouldn't be <laughs> You shouldn't have to like grab the seat, make that face and push for all your might. You know, a lot of people in North America are very constipated. Yeah. Alternatively, you know, if you see undigested food particles in your in your stool, um, if your stool is really thin, if there's obviously any blood or anything that's of abnormal color, what comes out gives you an insight as to how well or how efficient the process is working. So that's a big area. And what I have a lot of my clients do, and maybe, you know, whoever in Denmark is going to start doing this, I have them eat beets. I have them boil beets and eat a large bowl of beets. Why? Because it makes you shit red. Yeah. But after you eat the beets, you hit the stopwatch. Because you want to start seeing how long it takes for the red to come out. And here's the thing, the average bowel movement should be between 12 and 16 hours from the time you eat food to the time that you, you know, go and do your business. So this is a Now, challenge for all of the listeners. Yes. How much how everyone in Denmark is going to have red poo over the next few weeks. How, how much do you need to eat and then you need to time it afterwards? Like yeah, how you big You have a competition for the longest red poo. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the other thing too. You have to remember that you've eaten the beets because if you're really constipated and you don't poo for two days, you might think you're bleeding inside and you might rush to the hospital. True. So remember that. Yeah. But the average person is moving their bowels every 12 to 16 hours. It's like emptying a septic tank or cleaning out a sewer. The bowel is also the sewer of the body. It's where a lot of the toxins, you know, discarded food, things that need to be detoxified via the liver and processed and released, that's where the body gets rid of them. So if those things aren't moving, then the bowel is becoming, you know, I don't want to use the word septic because sepsis is a medical condition, but it's becoming very toxic. And a lot of those compounds can get reabsorbed via the colon back into the bloodstream. So they yep. place a burden on the body to detoxify them again. You know, there's a book that's called, What's Your Poo Telling You? Yeah. And if you make it kind of fun, kind of enjoyable for people, these topics become a little less scary and a little less weird because you realize that at the end of the day, 
your body will always give you symptoms, signs, and insights as to what's going on. And one of the easiest areas to optimize is your GI system yeah. because it really is the last area of the outside of your body. Yeah. So I actually suggested that we had the Bristol scale up at the office because I'm working with the health startups. And my colleagues yeah. were not that fun of the idea. I don't understand why. <laughs> but uh, Because no one wants to be number one or number seven. True, true. So a few words on the Bristol scale. People can, of course, go look at it and just Google it. But uh, what do you need to be aware of? I mean, you always want to aim for somewhere between three, four, and five. Yeah. Just because that's what an ideal stool should look like. It should be formed. It should not be hard to, you know, pass. And it should be moving on a regular basis. It should be like a well-timed train station, Mads. Yeah. That's what your colon should be likened to. <laughs> Perfect. You know, it's a Swiss train station. Very efficient, very on time. Yes. And what about the whole squatting and pooping? So there is some science to support the use of something called a squatty potty. Do you guys have those in Europe? I haven't seen any, but I looked at one online. You can also use a stool, which is a much cheaper and easier option. Yeah. The reason this is there is because when you're sitting on a toilet and your body's at a right angle, the bowel is kind of just lazily hanging in the torso. Whereas when you, you squat, it puts the bowel in a better position for the muscles to force your, your waist out. Yeah. So anatomically, it's a more optimal scenario. I find people who are constipated will get better relief than people who go on a regular basis. I mean, I don't have one. I doesn't say that I shouldn't, but I just don't because yeah. I'm fortunate enough not to have issues in that department. Be kind of contra, you know, contradictory me having gut issues as a, a gut guy. Yeah. But fundamentally, yeah, they're they're meant to help introduce a better anatomical position so the bowel can move itself easier. Yeah. More easily. Yeah. What are some other like concrete things you'd, uh, we should know about the microbiome or the digestive system? Like some concrete things that we can actually go do. We can look at our poop right after, yep. focus on our our food, get things that yeah. have a lot of fibers. We can actually get a test if we have got some problems. We can also get a blood test. Yeah, there's some other concrete things you can do from an action perspective are, you know, fasting is actually very healing and therapeutic for the gut. The mm -hmm. reason being is... You know, digestion requires a lot of energy. And if your body's always breaking food down, then not only is it, there lesser energy resources dedicated to the body doing other things, but if it's always processing food, it's never cleaning itself out. So one of the things I get my clients to do, and it's individual to the person, is select a fasting window and select an eating window so you can determine when there's a period of time of nothing outside, maybe water or liquids going into your GI system, because you also improve metabolic control. You improve metabolic flexibility. There are some beneficial effects inside the cell that you can simulate enhanced fat metabolism, things like autophagy. And fasting can also help in a, in a dysbiotic state because when you're not feeding the foods that are driving dysbiosis, the immune system can help control some of those pathogens because that's the role of the gut immune system is to keep things in check down there. Yeah. Now, And how long would you be fasting? So intermittent fasting, the 16 hours or... 24 hours? There's no hard and fast rule that I promote. I would say at a minimum, you should do 12 hours fasting every day and then give yourself 12 hours of time to eat. I usually go a little more towards 16, but my my one little tidbit I want to mention for those who are fasting is if you've never fasted before and you're not really good with blood sugar control, it can make you feel a little thrown off, a little hangry, a little bit of brain fog. And if you're fasting you should mirror the signal of fasting 
with lifestyle being a little bit slower paced. You know, you shouldn't do a 24 hour fast and go to the CrossFit gym. Hmm. Those two things are kind of at odds with each other. Uh, once a month, there's nothing wrong with doing a 24 hour fast, you know, a water fast that gives your system like a, a your immune system and your gut kind of a, a little bit of a reset. But if you've never done a 24 hour fast before, just understand that you're not taking any energy in. So you're requiring your body to be able to break down your energy stores via the liver glycogen you store and the fat that's on your body as a form of energy. So it's something that might be uncomfortable to someone at first, but the more they stick with it, the easier it gets. Yeah. I'm definitely doing a few episodes on fasting as well, getting some more experts in. It seems like whatever health expert I'm talking to, everyone is like fasting. Well, how how novel? Just don't eat for a while and your health yeah. gets better, right? It's such it's a concept. complex concept. <laughs> it's fantastic. Instead of all of these expensive biohacks and so on, just like take a break. Mm -hmm. And then if you're a woman, just be a bit more cautious about your hormone balance and so on. I heard there's differences in whether just to do a 24-hour fast as a woman in regards to... Yeah, well, men too, right? Because yeah. you have to pair the signal with the outcome you want for your body. Meaning if you're a high-level athlete, male or female... Fasting and doing intensive exercise is not a synchronous connection, right? You're doing a catabolic activity, which is exercise, and providing a catabolic signal, which is restraining from eating. Mm. So you have to pair your fasting with the intent of your activity to get the best benefit. Because if you fast and you require your blood sugar to be raised, then you're going to need to make a lot of cortisol. Yeah. And then that feeds some of the purpose of the fast because you're not going to be balancing out fat metabolism. You're going to be breaking down muscle mass in order to supply the blood sugar. Yeah. yeah. And Roland, do you have any routines that you do during the day or like morning routines, evening routines? Yeah, I get up every morning and I dance to 80s music for about 20 minutes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's a routine to consider to actually start. Yes, those are energy exercises. The thing that I always do in the morning is... I do express some kind of gratitude. You know, I always want to start the day in a, in a good state. I'm lucky to be able to do what it is I want to do for a living. So I don't have the luxury of having to fight traffic. It's not really a luxury. It's more of a suffering experience. But I don't have to do that. So I don't have a nine to five job. So I really enjoy the fact that I can set my alarm to when I want to wake up. I get up in the morning. I hydrate. I refrain from eating for a couple hours. I make sure I have my coffee. It's organic coffee. It's a ritual for me. And then I do some morning reading. Yeah. And that could be something health related. It could be something personal interest just to kind of set the tone for the morning. First meal, because my bias is longevity, but also optimal health and longevity. I generally do not have a high carbohydrate breakfast or lunch just because one of the benefits of fasting is you can simulate fat metabolism to be your predominant source of fuel. And you can extend your carbohydrate fast via eating a higher fat, moderate protein meal to not spike your blood sugar and insulin levels. So that's usually what it is I do. And then I'll have carbs in the afternoon or later on in the day. And it depends on my activity level. Hmm. But I, I'm not too rigid with a lot of those things because I find excessive rigidity with biohacking and all that kind of stuff. You create stress surrounding, oh, my God, I didn't get my number of steps in per day or I didn't get my light exposure or I didn't sauna five times this week. Yeah. It's like it's the same thing when people have, oh, my God, I had cheesecake today or at least the guilt or the, the negative association with those things is actually worse than missing or doing the activity in and of itself. So once I stabilize my day with a little bit of ritual and structure, it's whatever the day brings me. Yeah. It's yeah. cool to hear. And the gratitude, do you like do a gratitude journal or do you do gratitude meditation? Like, um, 
my own little meditative structure, for lack of a better description. You know, the idea of modern life being so busy, you need to schedule in your times to find stillness and quiet. So that's a big thing because those signals and the stress of not being that actually do have a negative impact on your GI system, right? Yeah. Like think about what happens to your gut when you're nervous or when you're stressed. So that's another actionable item for your listeners is find more time to do something for yourself that doesn't stimulate stress so your body thanks you by operating more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people learn more about you? And how can people get in contact with you? So you do help a lot of clients in Canada and you also help some people in Europe? Yeah. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, extend our health optimization practice service offering to those in Europe. So I'm currently working with Genova for myself and my colleague to be able to practice with people in Europe. So I should have those details fairly soon. I have a call this coming Friday, which will have come and gone by the time you publish this episode. Yeah. So what I can do is once I get those details verified, I can connect with you, Mads, and we can help figure out if people are interested, how do we facilitate that? Yeah. I do have a couple podcasts on YouTube, so if people want to see more of, it's mostly GI stuff, if not all, so they can search out my name there. There is a health optimization website. It's called homehope.org, and that's about the practice of health optimization itself. And if those are interested in becoming health optimization practitioners, you can actually enroll in the course to do what it is I do for a living. And then I have my own website, which I'm building. It's a little under construction. It's called uh, rttrcorp.com. And then there's a contact feature where uh, people can send me messages and I mm -hmm. get to them when I uh, get a chance to go through the emails. Great. And what about social media? I'm getting better at it. I've not <laughs> been good. I have an Instagram account that I just started. It's called, I'll tell you, it's called Health Optimization Canada. Cool. Follow at Health Optimization Canada. I'm going to start doing more content there. Uh, yeah. Ayla and myself are going to introduce some more content and ways of sharing information with people on that. And on top of that, I don't have Facebook or anything like that. So Instagram is probably the best medium. Yeah, I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. And you have a colleague as well. So you're not only working on gut issues, you work on health in general. We do health optimization as a formal practice, which is the detection and correction of metabolic imbalances, deficiencies, toxicities. So the GI system and the GI testing is one of the three pillars of the tests that we do. We yeah. also do vitamin and mineral analysis with the blood. We do organic acid analysis with urine and we do food sensitivity testing. And that's the and IgG4, that's right? Correct. That's IgG4. And then we tie all the pieces together in an individual analysis to determine your individual imbalances, your being the client. But we also connect all the dots to say, here's what's going on with your system, here's how healthy you are, and here's where we want to get you into a, a better status or a better place of health. Yeah. So you know, the GI testing is a big part of it. The gut immune system is one of the seven pillars of health optimization, and it's one of the three major tests that we do. Got it. And rounding off, any last advice for the listeners? You know, I'm sure everyone rhymes off like, you know, do this, do that. I would say that you said something to me in the beginning that I liked. And it was one thing that you try to prioritize is not getting too crazy with all this technology and gadgets and getting back to the basics with spending some time in nature, spending time with good people. That's a really strong piece of advice because there's so much benefit in there that people fail to see in the moment. But it's like 
an investment account. You know, you're compounding interest over 25, 30 years. You're going to get a really good growth or return on your investment. You know, getting rid of toxic relationships or toxic environments is a way that you can improve your health. You can't necessarily test it, but you'll know yourself how you feel when you're around the people that make you feel a certain way versus people that make you feel a way you don't like. That's one thing. The second thing I would say is if someone's goal is to optimize their health, it's really important to make sure that they invest in themselves, but they have the commitment to do so. The desire to eat a certain way, the commitment to being regularly active but not excessively active via exercise, you know, having a, a fairly regular sleep schedule or, an, or a good sleeping environment, those things are easy, low-hanging fruit for most people to get the basics right. So when they start to do the continuous glucose monitors or tracking their ketones, you know, that stuff is like the icing on the cake, but you need the sponge and the foundation of the mold in and of itself for the cake to even exist in the first place. And the last thing is just, you know, we're here for fun and learning. That's what I think life's all about. So hopefully everyone finds something they're passionate about in health and know that it's not your identity, but it's something that you enjoy for yourself and hopefully you get the benefit from it. Perfect. And I think it's so true. That's a... Uh... Right up the way I'm thinking as well. Way too many people stress about being healthy all the time. And then I understand, like, if you have a disease and you've been to a lot of doctors that are saying, like, there's nothing you can do, that's when you start to become more, you would say, fanatic or extreme. And you look into functional medicine, health optimization medicine, and you actually go to the root cause. And of course, you need to get it fixed. But once you have it fixed, it's so important that you actually relax as well and and don't it's get a good distinction off. you made there. You know, like functional medicine, if someone's really ill, that's the place that I would suggest starting. Something like functional medicine or naturopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. Health optimization is actually meant for healthy people. Just because you're not ill doesn't mean you can't do health optimization. It's actually the perfect basis because there's nothing wrong with you. You just want to be a better version of yourself. So that, that's something I would say is, you know, the last piece to close that out. Whatever someone experiences, unfortunately, usually without awareness, they brought themselves there. If they're sick, it's not because of something accidentally happening. So the onus, the, the requirement is on you to reverse engineer your way out of that situation. And that's what's really good about the health world now because people are doing their own investigation and it's allowing them to figure out what's actually causing you know, the imbalances or the diseases inside. But once you're there, it's figuring out how do you optimize health and without covering the basics – a lot of these tools are just nice toys. Agree. Agree. Roland, thank you so much for your time. It was really a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.